It is good to be worshiping with you this morning, and uh, let me get to my notes, and then we'll uh, quit ad-libbing. So, so if we've not met, I'm Jason, I'm Reverend Jason Crosby now, and so, yeah, thanks, thank you. That, um, uh, if you came to the ordination service for uh, Kyle, Justin, and, and myself, thank you so much for for coming and for being a part of that. It really uh, meant a ton uh, to us to, to have you there. And so thank you so much for your support and all of this. Thank you also when, when Chad mentioned that I was preaching today. Thanks for remaining seated. And nobody left. I appreciate that. So thank you. So uh, I'm married to uh, Susie. I'm a, a part of the leadership team here at Edgewood. I'm married to Susie. She is the nursery coordinator downstairs. We have three kids. Brinley is uh, our oldest. She is eight. Madison is in the middle. She is five. And Eli is three. And those guys are a ton of fun to be around. Now, outside of Edgewood, I'm the station manager at Moody Radio here in the Quad Cities. And Moody Radio is uh, one of our go team partners. And so when Brian asked me to preach this weekend, I asked if, if we could have a display and if I could bring part of the team of Moody Radio Quad Cities. And so the morning team from Moody Radio, Ken and Deb, are here today. And we have a table outside of the, uh, the windows there across from the cafe. If you want to stop by, say hello. And then we've also got a book that somebody is going to win this weekend. It's a new book from Moody Publishers. It's called Little Pilgrim's Progress. And it's a fantastic read. I've been reading it to my kids at night and uh, it's been hard for us to put down, but I highly recommend it uh, for parents and and for uh, grandparents. So one of my responsibilities as manager is to produce what's called a 30-second spot. And I, I try to do this twice a month. And this spot airs randomly at uh, different times throughout the broadcast day. And so I enjoy the challenge of writing this spot. It's a, it's a creative outlet for me. And, and so what happens when I'm, I'm working on this is writing sends me off on a journey for something that I really enjoy, and that's useless trivia. <laughs> and so here's the thing about a good spot. A good spot has at the beginning what's called a hook or a tease. It is something to keep you listening to hear the rest of what's being said. For example, here's a a piece of trivia that I used in the last spot that I I did. 288 questions. Any guesses? What is 288 questions? It's the number of questions that the average mom hears in a day. (laughs) So... So, uh, so here's one that, that has been ruminating in my mind and at some point will become uh, a spot. There is a, a water park in Dubuque that my family and I enjoy uh, visiting, and it's uh, located right on the Mississippi River. Now, a short walk away from this water park is a train bridge, and it's the Dubuque Railroad Bridge. And we have seen this bridge many times, but our last visit was the first time that we ever saw a train use the bridge to cross the Mississippi. And so as the train was, was crossing the bridge, I, I thought to myself, this, this train is going unusually slow. And so I, I scanned the bridge, and you can't see it in the picture, but if you look to the Illinois side of the river, this is taken from the Iowa side, 
going all the way across the bridge is a tunnel that the train comes out of to go through this bridge. So thanks to Google, I learned that this bridge, this tunnel rather, is 851 feet long. It has been in use since 1867. And there are an estimated seven trains that pass through this tunnel every day. And due to the sharp 90-degree turn that happens inside the tunnel, trains are only allowed to drive 10 miles per hour through it. So for most of us in this room, that is useless trivia. (laughs) It has no meaning on any of our lives. But if you are an engineer for Canadian National Railway, you not only need to know the information, you also need to apply it. Because failure to apply this information could be costly for you, the companies who are trusting you with their cargo, the homeowners living on top of the bluff, and the almost 60,000 people who call Dubuque and East Dubuque home. You see, the evidence of an engineer who is applying the information that I just presented to you is a train going 10 miles per hour through the tunnel and across the bridge. So I invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, looking at verses 25 through 37. And you, uh, no doubt, are familiar with this story. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in our text, we're going to see that knowledge of the instruction to love God isn't enough. It isn't enough to say you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must apply that knowledge. And the main idea that we're going to see is that one result of your love for God should be an increase in your love for your neighbors. So let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this opportunity to worship you now through the teaching of your word. And so, God, we ask that you would take these words, that you would apply them to our lives. 
God, that it wouldn't just be information that we hear today. God, that we would apply this. And, and Father, I, I also ask God, that there, I'm sure, are some in this room and watching on the live stream. And they just wonder, they wonder, are you Lord? And so, God, I, I pray that you would show up as you did for Israel, the Israelites throughout the Old Testament, demonstrating that you and you alone are God. And so, Father, we ask that you would affirm that truth during this time today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier, I mentioned that kids ask moms an average of 288 questions per day. Moms, by contrast, ask kids 100 questions per day. And of all the questions that you may get asked throughout your day, none is more important than the question that is asked in this text. You see, inherently built into each of us is the knowledge that we do not cease to exist following death. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, One Minute After You Die, describes it this way. He says, one minute... After you slip behind the parted curtain, you will either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you have ever known it. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. And so, while relatives and friends plan your funeral, you will be more alive than you have ever been. You will either see God on his throne surrounded by angels and redeemed humanity, or you will feel an indescribable weight of guilt and abandonment. There is no destination midway between these two extremes, just gladness or gloom. Well, in our text, the lawyer decided to test Jesus over the path to gladness. And it's important that we understand some things that are going on in the text. So let's start with the man's profession. Luke tells us he was a lawyer. He wasn't a lawyer in the same way that you and I think of the occupation. He didn't prosecute or defend clients before a judge, nor did he prepare or review contracts or advise clients on any other legal matters. But he did have a knowledge of the law. But that knowledge wasn't rooted in secular laws. His knowledge was in religious law. He was familiar with the religious laws of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the teachings of influential rabbis of the day and their commentary on the Pentateuch. So it's also possible that he, as an expert of the law, was a first among equals. And so Luke tells us that the lawyer stood to put Jesus to the test. So perhaps to help us in our mind's eye visualize what's going on, it might be helpful to process it this way. So when you were a kid, did you ever say something to a group of friends or promise to do something, but then have your fingers crossed? So what did it mean? What did it mean to have your fingers crossed? It meant that you were either lying or you had no intention of fulfilling your promise. You weren't honest, you were dishonest. 
And in verse 25, the lawyer stood, but he has his fingers crossed. In a teaching setting like this, standing was a sign of respect, but the lawyer's motive is quickly revealed. And while his outward action may have indicated respect, his his inward attitude was completely disrespectful. And so the lawyer's question was meant to test Jesus. What does that test word mean? It means to entrap someone into giving information that's going to jeopardize the person. And in the lawyer's mind, the best way to do that was to ask a question that was being discussed at that time. It's a question that is still discussed today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So do you know what, Edgewood? We believe that this question is so important. We have the answer included in our Constitution. It is so central to who we are as a body that we use it to govern us organizationally. And you can find it in Article 5, Section 1D as part of the Statement of Faith and Covenant section of our Constitution. Here's the deal, though. The answer to this question is bigger than any organization. This answer governs both believers and unbelievers alike, and it applies to all who have lived, are living now, and who will ever live. And see, when mankind tries to answer this question apart from God, we end up with the same answer that the lawyer did. You see, even though the lawyer answered his own question in verse 27, it says, and the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The key to what the lawyer really believed about the answer is found in his question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So to inherit is to receive something. This request involved the reception of eternal life, which is part of the future world that God brings, and the lawyer wanted to be sure to earn it. The lawyer's question was really this, What what must I do to share in the resurrection of the righteous at the end? He wanted to know, how can I earn my righteousness and eventually obtain or inherit the reward for my righteousness? I need you to keep this question nearby because we're going to step away from it for just a moment. But in the following verses, the lawyer is going to expound on this question and really expose his heart. So let's look at the dialogue. In verse 25, the lawyer says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So do you see what Jesus did there? He answered the question with a question. He redirected the lawyer back to the law. One commentator put it this way, by responding this way, Jesus identifies himself not as a radical who wishes to deny the teaching of Jewish tradition, but as one who wishes, wishes to reflect on what God requires. See, he sends the lawyer to their shared source of authority, the law, God's instruction to his people. And now the pressure is no longer on Jesus to answer correctly. The pressure's on the lawyer who did answer correctly. And so in verse 27, the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer's answer comes from two Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And when they are combined, they are commonly called the great commandment. 
So loving God with the heart requires a response to God from the the innermost center of who you are, of your being. Loving God with your soul brings in the place of the vital life force that energizes us. It's our aliveness, our conscious aliveness. Loving with your strength introduces the, the element of energetic physical action. And loving with your mind identifies the importance beyond the emotional of the thinking and the planning process that the mind contributes to. So to love your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean that you love them as much as you love yourself. It does mean to love your neighbor in the way that you would love yourself. So the call is to behave toward the other with the same consideration and the concern that you would naturally show toward yourself. So make sure you catch this. The path to eternal life begins with loving God. John MacArthur puts it this way. All evangelism begins here. It's not about this life. It's not about prosperity, health, happiness, healing, success, money, possessions, or freedom from trouble in this life. MacArthur calls that junk bond evangelism. He says, so if you're going to do some evangelism, you've got to move people from Jesus is going to fix me here to Jesus is going to deliver me in the life to come. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So what's the best illustration of that. It's this. Are you obedient to God? Are you obedient to God? And then the first step in obedience is placing your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So is there evidence in your life of obedience? And then Is there evidence in your life, the time, the place, you can mark it, you know for certain that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Now listen, the lawyer should have stopped right there. He should have stopped right there. Have you ever ever watched a, a game show where the contestants win in all kinds of money? And, and they, they turn to the audience and they've got the option to continue and win more money or they could stop. And the audience is shouting, stop, stop, and they keep going and lose it all. So that's, that's what's going on here. The lawyer should have stopped. But he, he, he continues. What he should have done is he should have stopped He should have confessed that he cannot live up to the expectation and he should have repented. But Jesus said to the lawyer in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he didn't stop. He continued, he dug his heels in and he replied with, and who is my neighbor? So earlier I asked you to keep In the back of your mind, the summary of the lawyer's question. So let's recall that again. The lawyer wanted to know, how can I earn my righteousness and eventually obtain or inherit the reward for my righteousness? And so now that he's answered his own question, 
His character comes through. Look at verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself uh, said uh, to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now on the surface, this question may look credible. It appeared that the lawyer was just looking for clarification. He's not. So what's really going on? So we have friends, the Siebenthals, who have a farm near Peoria. And in the fall, for the last couple of years, we have taken the kids to their farm so that they can ride in a combine and see this massive machine harvest corn. Now, last year, while we visited, a belt broke on one of their big tractors, the tractor that's pictured right there. Now, I'm not mechanically inclined at all, so I just stood out of the way and watched while Ryan, who's the dad, And one of his sons worked really hard to get a brand new belt on his tractor. They completed every step except one. I watched them do this step when they took the old belt off. So when they were ready, I walked to the other side of the tractor, executed the last step, the tractor fired right up, and that is the story of how I fixed Ryan Siebenthal's tractor. (laughs) Now, in reality, the vast majority of the work was done by Ryan and his son. I did the bare minimum amount of work to be able to get credit for the fix. And that's what's going on here. You see, the lawyer's trulers, true colors rather, come out in that he didn't want to just inherit eternal life. He wanted to do the minimum amount of work to obtain it. You see, if the lawyer's question was allowed to stand, that means that you and I have neighbors and non-neighbors. Neighbors you must love, but non-neighbors can be discriminated against. Neighbors get your attention. Non-neighbors can be ignored. And what Jesus did with this question was he shifted the focus. So when I'm, when I'm reading, I wear reading glasses. And, and I, can, I can take my glasses off and I can still see parts of the words. And often I, I can see enough of the word to make out what the word is. But when I have my reading glasses on, the glasses bring clarity. They bring the words into focus. And they eliminate the need for any guesswork. Because I can see the word perfectly. And I know exactly what word it is. So in the story that's coming, Jesus is about to bring clarity. He's going to bring clarity to our focus. And instead of seeing the blurry lines of the lawyer's view of neighbors, we're going to see clearly that God's view is not who is and who isn't your neighbor. His view is how can you, how can I be neighborly? So look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The first part of this parable would have surprised nobody. Jerusalem sat 2,600 feet above sea level. Jericho is 18 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, yet it lies 825 feet below sea level. That means the descent from Jerusalem to Jericho is right around 3,400 feet. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was steep. It was rugged, 
and windy. It was full of caves and robbers were known for hiding out in these caves. Now the word that's used in our text for robber can also mean bandits. It can mean political zealots. It can mean terrorists. So robberies were often group affairs. And that's exactly what happened in Jesus's story. The man was outnumbered. He was robbed. He was assaulted and left with a 50% chance of life. And so in verse 31, Jesus said, now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Again, a priest traveling down this road would not have been an unusual occurrence. Most priests did not live in Jerusalem. So when they reached the end of their two weeks of temple service, they would then return home. And so in this story, the priest was traveling down the road and this was actually a happy occurrence. That's what the words by chance imply. In other words, what are the odds? What's, what, what incredible fortune for this man who is half dead. Here's a guy who's beaten up so badly he might die. And here comes someone who can help. What good fortune. However, the story takes a twist. And for reasons that we simply don't know, reasons known only to Jesus as the storyteller, the priest saw the man and crossed to the other side of the road. But in verse 32, Jesus continued, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Like a priest, a Levite was a religious leader, though he had different responsibilities at the temple. You could consider him like a priest's assistant. The Levite was also seen as a potential hero in this story in that what the Levite does is he actually, he comes up to the man, stands right next to the body, So he analyzes the situation, and then he leaves. He walks away. So here we have two men who could have helped, who should have helped, and instead chose to do nothing. Who was going to help this clearly hurting man? And this is where the story takes a twist. Jesus said in verse 33 and following, but a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. There is no way that the lawyer saw this coming. Maybe this third person is a fellow Israelite but certainly not a Samaritan. Picture people, so put yourself in in this story, right? Jesus is telling this to you. So picture people who in the story look exactly like you. They dress like you. They think like you. They look just like you. And in this story, Jesus is saying those people wanted nothing to do with the guy who's half dead. Now, Picture him saying, your worst enemy. That's the one. The people who looked like you didn't do a thing, but your worst enemy is the one, is the hero in the story. Go and emulate them. That's offensive. That's offensive. I mean, even even Samaritans, Jesus disagreed with their theology, and yet in this story, they're the hero. 
They're the moral hero. Because the Samaritan treated the victim's wounds with bandages, oil, and wine, and put him on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and cared for him. Look at the level of care that the Samaritan provides. He bandaged him up, provided the proper first aid, put him on his own animal, likely walked alongside the animal all the way to the inn. Innkeepers were not known for extraordinary, extraordinary care, so the man fronted the money. Two denarii, that's two days' wages, essentially enough money to keep the man under the care of the innkeeper for at that time would have been 24 days. That's extraordinary hospitality for a man that he never met and has a 50% chance of living. So which of these three proved to be a neighbor? That's the question Jesus asked the lawyer. And it's an important question because prior to Jesus' parable, the lawyer believed his neighbor was the priest and the Levite or a fellow Israelite. But Jesus brought clarity to the lawyer. And now this wise man with a solid understanding of the law must also acknowledge that the Samaritan, his enemy, is a neighbor. But the lawyer couldn't even say the guy's name. Look at verses 36 and 37. Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man and fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say Samaritan. No acknowledgement that the one who showed him mercy wasn't the priest or the Levite, but the Samaritan. So Jesus' final words to the lawyer are this. You go and do likewise. One commentator summarized the parable this way. The outgrowth of our love for God is a response to our fellow humans. We are to love and be a neighbor to those who are part of our lives. Neighborliness is not found in bonds around being of the same race, nationality, color, gender, proximity, or by living in a certain neighborhood. We become a neighbor by responding sensitively to the needs of others. That's the example of the Samaritan, who not only soothed the beaten man's wounds, but also took him to a place of shelter, cared for him, and made sure his needs were met. The Samaritan cared for a person he had never seen before. And without asking questions, he served a cup of mercy to a person half dead. By reviving life, he showed life. If we seek to restrict those we serve, we need to hear the lesson Jesus taught the lawyer. The issue is not who we may or may not serve, but serving where need exists. We are not to seek to limit who our neighbors might be. Rather, we are to be a neighbor to those whose needs we can meet. So what do we do with today's message? What do we do with it? First, if you've not settled the question of eternal life, let's take care of that. You cannot earn eternity with God in heaven. It's impossible. Your sin eliminates you from qualifying. However, there is one, Jesus Christ, who did live the sinless life you could not live. He died the death on the cross. You should have died. He was buried and rose again. 
And he offers you eternity with God. He offers you salvation. But if you, you have to take the first step of obedience and place your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. He is ready to be Lord of your life and you can delightfully follow him the rest of your days. So have you settled the question of eternal life? Second, in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, Christ calls you and me, his followers, to love our enemies. You see, unlike the lawyer in Luke who could not get past his disdain for the Samaritan, Christ calls his followers to love their enemies. And what that means is to have an invincible goodwill toward them. It's not the emotional love that you might have for your spouse or for your family or close friends. It's an invincible goodwill toward them. You see, culture says you only have to love those who think, look, and act like you, and you can hate your enemy. Jesus says that's not true. So, Our second application point is this. Who's the difficult person? Maybe it's people that you and Jesus both know are your enemy. And Jesus is pressing you to take steps toward loving them. I know it's going to be hard. And I'm not minimizing the damage or the hurt that any enemy has inflicted. But what I want you to know is that Jesus offers you freedom from bearing the grudge and the power to extend love to your enemy. So number three, how are you doing at fully loving God? Like loving God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. If you had to put together a scale of one to ten, how are you doing at loving God and then manifesting that, lo- that love toward others? What number would you give yourself? Let me ask you this. What number would your neighbor give you? Let's take it even, even further. Drive it, drive it home a little bit more. What number would God give you? Because that's the one that really matters. Do you know... That good neighboring is one of the things that led Rosaria Champagne Butterfield to faith in Christ. Prior to Christ, Rosaria identified as a lesbian who taught in the English Department and Women's Studies program at Syracuse. In 1997, while researching to launch an attack against the religious right, she wrote a newspaper article against the Promise Keepers. Ken Smith, the pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, read her article. Smith mailed Rosaria a letter that was kind and inquiring, inviting her to explore questions like, how did you arrive at your interpretations, and how do you know you are right? Rosaria threw the letter away, only to fish it out later that night. She waited a week before deciding to take Ken up on his offer to grab dinner with him and his wife. And what followed was a two-year friendship where Rosaria was invited 
into the world of the Smiths, and the Smiths invited into Rosaria's world. There were book exchanges, meeting of friends, meals, prayer, and many conversations. Eventually, Rosaria started reading her Bible, and she was forced to reckon with these penetrating thoughts about the Bible. What if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? Rosaria continued with her Bible reading, eventually began attending church and fought hard against coming to faith in Christ. And then, in her own words, then one ordinary day I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floy, that's Ken's wife, Floy was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. Friends, listen. That process started with good neighboring. So who is the neighbor who needs you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it might be full of words from you that are hard to hear, that uh, are not necessarily easy to implement, and yet at the end of the day, it, it's your word. It's, this is how you feel on this subject. There aren't neighbors and non-neighbors, but there are opportunities for us to be neighborly. So God, we sit in this place and we ask for your help. And the great news is that you provide it. There is, for those of us who are followers of Christ, there's a Holy Spirit indwelling within us who supplies the power for us to be able to do these things. And so we need that. We need that help. You have not left us alone. You've not said, here it is, now go do it. And, and then left us to figure it out for ourselves. But you have, you've given us your power to do this lovingly, compassionately, and in a way that's going to bring honor and glory to your name. So God, we plead with you. We are weak creatures. We need your help. And then Father, I pray for my friends who may be listening today in this room or watching on the live stream, and they have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Oh God, in this moment, may they acknowledge that they are sinners in need of a Savior. May they acknowledge that their sin separates them from you. And then God, may they acknowledge that there's nothing they can do 
that will make them right with you. Nothing they can do to inherit eternal life. What they need is a savior. And so God, in this moment, may they declare that they place their faith in Jesus Christ to be their Lord and their savior. And God, that they would follow him joyfully as Lord of their lives for the rest of their days. God, thank you so much for the time that we've had in your word. We pray that you were blessed and worshiped in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.